My Vietnam experience is the thing that informed me about the separateness of us. I was using what is called neuroplasticity, where I reframe the horror that I was in in a way that made it work for me as a positive spirit. I was able to do that in war, and each time, I don't know where it came from, but it came within. I would be in a situation where I wouldn't have ever thought I could have made it through it, like having rats run all across me and around me and stuff like that. And I could get into a mantra state that was that the rats didn't bug me. They bite everybody else, but they wouldn't mess with me. They just just knew that I was at one with myself. And so they let me loose. Hi, I'm Marika Trotter. I'm history and theory coordinator and faculty here at SciArc. This podcast is about contemporary architectural issues and attitudes. It's organized by theme, which means that we can have the option to connect unexpected things together and maybe rethink just by juxtaposition how we approach things within architecture, but also how architecture approaches things outside of itself. This episode is about optimism, not the sunny hope of untested expectations or the wishful thinking of our dreaming selves, but the dogged commitment to making the future better than the one forecast by the present. Arts educator and independent filmmaker Ben Caldwell is a founding member of the LA Rebellion, a radical film movement founded at UCLA in the 1970s. He resides in the neighborhood of Lamert Park, epicenter of the black art scene in Los Angeles. After teaching film and video at Howard University in Washington, DC, Caldwell returned to Lamert Park and created an independent studio for video production and experimentation that became the Chaos Network, a community art center that provides training on digital arts, media arts, and multimedia. This is a special themed issue about optimism. And when we talk about optimism, we haven't been talking about kind of glass is half full, sunny day, naivete, as much as we've been talking about the ability to imagine a better future. This is something that it seems to me, looking at your work, looking at you, watching your films, that you have made a central focus of your practice. And I'm thinking in specific about even in the early days of your career, when you were associated with the LA Rebellion. We were the first group of Black people that were allowed in the regular program, because the programs before were all ethnographic. They were called ethnographic films. And so whoever wasn't white was considered ethnographic. So the thing that was the plus about that was that we had people who were Latinos. And then we also had Asians in the mix. And so we had also people who were from Persia, Iran, that were considered the others too. And so all of us others said, oh, so they consider us the others. So we're going to show them what the others really look like. So we collectively worked together and came up with a team. And so the LA Rebellion was just that. We we saw from the very beginning that we were in a racist institution that didn't treat us correctly. And we were all working on our masters. So we collectively got together and figured out how to, to make it work with no money. I think our major template operating 
with the resources at hand, there's multiple ways that resources come. You can uh, garner uh, uh, what would be considered money by working with the community, for instance. If you're already embedded in community and you're doing your stories in the community, then you don't have to convince them that you're wanting to shoot there. You know, and you don't have to cordon off the area. You can embed yourself into the area and make yourself an integral part of the, of, of the whole story and the mishmash. So that was one way because you could get high quality work because you got real good actors because they were real people that are all around you. And how did you see your work beyond the subject matter? And beyond the the anti-racist agenda, it seems also that the way that you were approaching the material of film was quite unique. I was raised around film. I saw that it really puts people under a spell. And so I thought, since people are under spells, why feed them Pablo? You know, why not give them healthy, nutritious, strong images and ideas and concepts and even on how you engage the pathos of the story. So I said, if I'm going to handle film, I want to make a film where I can watch it each time and it's different, just like music. It's like if we were a bunch of puppies, they all come out all different colors. And so people don't judge each other because of colors. They're just all colors coming from one mama that's multiple colors too. So that's the way I think humans are until someone tells you that these are significant colors, that this is supposed to be this way and that's supposed to be this way. Because I remember myself before I noticed colors, you know? And so I also can remember myself before they told me that I was supposed to kill somebody just because they were supposed to be different. Then they train you in the army. When they trained me, I was in the art school and they took me from an art school to the army and gave me, I always say, exchange a paintbrush for a machine gun. And you're talking about your experience in Vietnam. In Vietnam, you know, my Vietnam experience is the thing that informed me about the separateness of us and this positive perspective that you're talking about that I have. Because what I saw instantly as an artist, that they were trying to brainwash me into a killer. And I did whatever I could with my young mind to make sure that that didn't happen. And so I think what I'm looking at now, I was using what is called neuroplasticity, where I reframe the horror that I was in, in a way that made it work for me as a positive spirit. And with that perspective, it makes it easier for you to be at one in horror because you know it's not a party. When you set up the, the Chaos Network here in Los Angeles, um, it seems like that's all about taking the realities of the world, looking at them in their specificity and always being able to find some good or some possibility in them. Right. Yeah, well, uh, we needed to get back to alkali. A diet and that the acidic diet really causes a lot of turmoil in your body. So within that, we started talking about balance and acidity and media and the correlations of what you eat and what your brain ingests. So I started this place, Chaos Network, as a healing facility because I thought that nobody was spending time in media where they thought of it as a healing facility. I'm thinking about this desire for wellness and a sense of wholeness and a sense of health and how you're connecting that to forthright, deeply felt communication. Those are not things that are often linked in our culture. 
And it should be because they're both the same thing. Just look at these last four years of media indoctrination. I really hold the media organizations of the United States for empowering what happened because they like drama. It teed me off because I have like Yahoo and AOL and on the front line almost every day was Trump. That's bad. And then why did they give a feed to tweets? You know, why did they give it any significance? You know, they are the ones that help groom this problem. And I think it's also in a lot of ways, it's kind of good. And the reason that it's good is that their unhealthiness shows. And it's at an important time in our world that the unhealthiness of them has to be shaken off and they have to get healthier or they're not going to make it on the next transition, you know, because that evil way is not going to happen on this next shake, you know? And I think we've been waiting for this for quite a while, but I think that it's finally, it's not the dawning, it's happening. <laughs> you know, it's not the dawning of the age. It's the age is now in full effect and we're watching it. And it's pretty wonderful in a way. I see it almost like a Buddhist. It's like a birth. Birth looks horrible when you're watching it. It's a lot of energy, but yet at the end of it comes this wonderful child. I'm wondering, what's your definition of optimism? Being real with the moment that you're living, you know, it's just really being real with what's going on, being real focused and clear about what's really there, not what you interpret to be there or put on to what's being there, but really being real with it. I started studying like African slaves that were captured. The people who were the most interesting group to, to capture were the Dogon culture. They could never be captured because even in slavery, they were free because you have to accept that. But if you're really present with yourself, you're never a captured being. And it's just the same thing that happened to me in the army. They tried to make me a, a domesticated animal. And there's a way that you can always uh, keep your humanity. When I found out that the army tried to take our humanity, then I got kind of pissed from that point on, because I think that that's a real horrible thing to take from people. And they do it and then they give it back to you and say, you're back in the streets again, you know. But when they take it away from you, that's the reason most of the guys are discombobulated you know, when they come back because they can't adjust. And I could adjust because I was really present with that moment, you know, of when I came back, I was always present when I was there. And so I became uh, ultra present when I came back. So it didn't mess with my brain so I could help counsel veterans. So I even counseled veterans for three years to help them acclimate. And I won all the cases because I got veteran uh, lawyers who are going to help. And we were able to heal and help guys a lot. So whatever I do, I try to heal. And that's the optimism, being super present and operating with the problems at hand. Sandy Halal is a Palestinian architect who headed the United Nations Infrastructure and Camp Improvement Program in the West Bank from 2008 to 2014. She is also co-founder of the Decolonizing Architecture and Art Research Collective. Her latest publication with Decolonizing Architecture, Permanent Temporariness, is on shelves now. Do you see your role as that of an optimist? 
I am Palestinian born in Palestine and I, I have been born under colonialism and, and therefore I had to deal with a situation of oppression and the situation of occupation and, and military occupation on daily basis while I mean throughout my childhood and, and it's still until now actually I have to face what does it mean to live under colonialism and I still remember actually when we were kids my father was trying to convince us that it's not only bad to live under occupation and under colonialism because we are lucky to fight for uh, our liberation, right? And, and, and fighting for liberation and fighting for both liberation, your mind, your body, uh, it, like living a life of constant liberation gives you a lot of, of optimism that, the, the, you know, you will actually be liberated. My struggle in life is to free myself and open up the floor for others to actually see that this is possible. And of course, I can claim that the architecture is one of these fields that helps doing so because architecture is also about imagining and figuring other possible futures even if they are not happening in the moment you are living in and and to be able actually to use my skills and 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 my profession to sort of imagine and, and free myself with an imaginary of a better future and different future and uh, free future was definitely uh, very, very important in, in my life and, and in my profession. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, like, if you remember an incident in your childhood when you realized that liberation was something that you could enact. The first intifada was very much about, you know, it was a nonviolent sort of uh, revolution. It was a, a civil disobedience. It was a way to say we cannot live anymore this way. And it, it was a very strong collective act and, and communal building. I was still 14 years old when the first intifada began. I was in a school, uh, quite a disciplined one, a German one by the church. And, uh, you know, we had a very strong school principle. And I remember walking in the corridors of the school was for us kids a very threatening thing. When the first intifada came, we began to have this communal actions and we decided not to, to strike inside uh, the school right and not to not to study as a way to be part of a larger disobedient movement and i remember when she came to these uh, corridors and she was shouting for us to come back to our classrooms and we were holding each other hands and we broke that moment and you would understand that but by being all together you are such a powerful uh, group that you can break any power that is in front of you. Colonialism is not a military occupation. It's a mental occupation. It does not come only out of the military uh, regime, the Israeli military regime, but it's also something that is embedded in so many ways of our thinking, our behaving, our being part of the place. And this moment was for me the first moment where I began to realize that, you know, breaking power is possible through communities. After that, the schools were closed and I began to study as in, uh, in, in what we called at that time the neighborhood uh, schools. And in the neighborhood schools, basically any teacher and any students in each neighborhood would find any empty place from living rooms uh, to garage 
to, you know, any empty spot in the neighborhood would become a classroom. And while we were studying, this was a forbidden act by the Israeli military regime. So in that sense, to think yourself as a 15 years old person studying in your in the living room of someone in your neighborhood and thinking that by doing this, you are fighting against the colonial regime because you are actually decolonizing your mind and your way of thinking. What does it mean to decolonize architecture? For me, a major point of uh, how to decolonize architecture is to let life dictate you rather than you dictate life. I mean, a lot of time we think that we can really sort of built a project, think about it, and already sort of, you know, build the story before even the story happened. For me, decolonizing architecture is about accepting that life is way more richer than what our minds would be able to plan and to keep that plan. And what we need to do is to let life dictate us and therefore understand that we will be moving with what is happening and and tell the story of it give it a form and accept that we might lose a little bit of control. I understand that for architects, planning and losing control might mean losing the whole discipline. But sometimes when you give yourself and your your, uh, service to what happens on the ground and and just accompany it, whatsoever is doing and, and give it the forms and understanding it because it's happening. This is where, for me, it becomes a very important uh, act of decolonization. Indeed, I, I all the time actually bring back this, the, the uh, design of a, of a square in Fawar refugee camp in south of the West Bank. And it took me seven years to sort of uh, understand that what is needed in a refugee camp is four walls and three doors and the sort of semi-closed, semi-open public space for it to work as a place for self-organization. How is public space or how is designing a public space an act of optimism? When I designed the Fawar Square, I, I positioned myself as an Arab woman that lived for a long time in Europe and Uh, received Western education on how I would today understand the public space in Palestine and in the place that is extreme temporariness, like the camp, right? So it was my own struggle that I opened up in the camp and we began to deal with each other's sort of agenda, various agendas, various fears and various, and, and each one would push within his own terms on where and and how to think that public space, because it is public, because it is collective. And and I did not shy at all of myself being a head of a department, having power as a woman. I declared it at the beginning that I would be support other women in the camp. In any community where we are working, there are a lot of power structures and within marginalized community, there are marginalized people and there are powerful people that are leading these communities. And But the moment that you begin again, as in, in my case, understanding that studying is by itself a way of decolonizing, a way of freeing the self, you would also understand that by designing and thinking your life and not letting your 
not letting the power dictate what is it for you, but create a process of transformation where we feel as community, we are doing something together. We are building communities and thinking together and created different power structures because the problem is that when power structures are made in a way that you feel that they you cannot break them, you cannot change them, you cannot shift them. And by sometimes by creating processes, even if it's simply by designing the square, you create a process of transformation. Because what you're talking about is people recognizing as a community that they are a community and that they can change their circumstances. And I think it's very important what you're saying, and I feel like I just want to underline it and maybe say it back to you, that the role of architecture is to be an expert in empowerment and to be an expert in designing processes that bring people into their full potential as communities and as individuals so that they understand that the way that they enact their daily lives can change the world in which they find themselves. This is The Arc, coming to you from SciArc, Los Angeles. Emily King is the founder of Prospector, a new search engine for the mining industry and is CEO of Global Venture Consulting. Prior to founding Global Venture Consulting and Prospector, Emily was the Director of Natural Resources for an Economic Development Task Force in the U.S. Department of Defense. Emily holds leadership positions in industry organizations such as Women in Mining USA, New America, World Trade Center Kabul, and the Afghanistan Mining Think Tank. She also hosts an awesome podcast, called On the Rocks. So Emily, I am so excited to talk to you today. It sounds like you have lived an adventure-filled, badass life. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I can't wait to hear more about it. Um, first of all, I have a question for you, though. Yeah. What is mining futurism? It's really this idea that we've mined in the same way for, for quite a long time in reality. I mean, we have an increasing levels of technology that we use to find mineral deposits and, and build mines and, and extract the, the metal out of the ground. But when you really think about where mining will be in the next even 10 to 50 years, we're looking at things like asteroid mining, uh, as well as deep sea mining which are really pretty cutting edge and require you to completely rethink the needs of the future because you know really as an industry we are we are trying to find material that that the future world will need like rare earth elements are a big thing right now as is lithium and cobalt those are minerals that a lot of people maybe haven't heard about before until we started having electric vehicles because they're they're used in batteries right uh, the, the new batteries that you have for electric vehicles but also renewable energy um, and anything really that's a low carbon technology really relies on battery metals and those all have to be mined right in order to have a low carbon future you actually have to have more metal 
capital um, brought out of the ground in order to, to build those things. But then you have things that people are really familiar with, like copper, because anything that runs on electricity still has to be charged and you still have to move that electricity and we still haven't found a replacement for copper. So copper will have huge demands in the future when, when you start doing these very futuristic things. There will be new discoveries that we make in terms of what you can do with, with rare earths, for example, that nobody cared about 30 years ago, right? But they facilitate a whole new field of technology. It feels like there's a, a stigma against mining and against any kind of extractive yeah. use of earth materials. Now, I know from my research in history of science, geology, you know, back way back when, that uh, one of the things it takes a long time for the human species to come to terms with is the fact that everything we use to sustain our life comes from the earth. Absolutely. There is, uh, you know, this saying that anything that can't be grown has to be mined, right? So anything you touch and look at and increasingly in our world today, your iPhone, your computer, your TV, your car, that's all made of material that comes out of the ground in a mine somewhere and then goes through a variety of different processes to be turned into a product, right? But it's all mined if it's not grown. I think the mining industry has done a terrible job <laughs> in marketing our contribution to the world in that sense. And there is a, a moral uh, calculus that goes on and in many different ways. There's the environmental, the social, and the governance factors around mining. And it's increasingly important that mining companies have good stewardship principles. What would you say to someone who may be coming from uh, some of the arguments around the Anthropocene, for instance, would argue that any extraction is exploitation? I mean, technically that's true. There's just not enough metal in the world within the current market to supply what the world needs. Populations are growing so rapidly. Cities are being built. Infrastructure is being built. People are coming up with new technology. So yes, it is exploitation. And uh, it, that's why it's so important that it be done the right way. Yeah, I think there's this idea that or, or we struggle in the industry because people almost act as if metal and minerals like just come from the magical fairy, right? There's no like cobalt fairy out there that's, you know, making batteries and putting them in your iPhone. So there's this sense, especially in the developed world that, you know, all that stuff's really dirty. We don't want that. And yet I, I always joke, they're tweeting their outrage from phones made of metal, right? So this, <laughs> this sense that, um, yeah, you don't want it here, but, but you want everything that comes from it and you want to be able to buy whatever you want and have it delivered delivered with your free prime delivery within two days, which is a huge carbon generation, right? If you think of all those Amazon prime trucks driving everywhere to get things to everyone. Uh, so there is, there's a little bit of hypocrisy there, um, between wanting to be able to be such a, a volumetric consumer and wanting things now, but not wanting to, to really look at the industries that make those things. I'm wondering too, if the first knee jerk reaction is one of refusal. So I'm going to, I'm going to not use an iPhone. I'm going to uh, cancel my Amazon prime delivery service. Um, I'm going to limit my membership, mm -hmm. but it seems to me like that is a, uh, a kind of impoverished kind of a pessimistic 
mm-hmm. view of human society and human imagination. And that we maybe we might be better off thinking about the world in terms of excess and possibility than thinking about it in terms of unintended consequences and, and scarcities. Yeah. And I think especially when we look at the the power that you have as a consumer or as an investor, part of what we're doing with, with my new company, Prospector, is trying to encourage non-traditional investors to take a look at the mining industry. Because if you're passionate about having things done in a pro-planet, you know, low-carbon way, and maybe you're buying stock in Tesla, right? You would do that why not buy stock in the companies that are going to mine the metal that Tesla is going to use to build cars? And once you're a shareholder of those companies, you have a voice, right? And you have transparency and you can see how are they doing things. And and that's where I think the optimism comes in that by actually coming in and participating in the sector, you have the opportunity to shape it and ensure that it's, it's being done in a way that's aligned with your values optimism, as you said, it's about engagement and it's about committing to the reality of the world that we have and that we share Mm -hmm. rather than sort of wishing, as you said, tweeting outrage and wishing things were otherwise. Uh, I wonder it's on that, you know, you've done this kind of, there's, there's your mining work, there's your mining futures and there's your geology. But there's this whole other part of your background that's so fascinating to me, which is about um, conflict and logistics and who goes in after war and what happens to those populations. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I actually got involved in the mining sector through my work in post-conflict countries. Uh, you know, I had a geology background, a degree, but I had never worked in the sector until I ran mining and mineral exploration programs in Iraq and Afghanistan for the U.S. Pentagon. Um, and I think that was powerful because the the mining and the extractives industries can make such enormous impact on emerging and frontier markets, right? The When we did our assessment of Afghanistan, there was no other industry that we looked at that could lift that country out of poverty other than the mining industry, right? In, in the short to medium term, you know, there is such tremendous value in, in that industry coming in and developing infrastructure, creating jobs, creating value in terms of um, royalty and tax streams back to a national government. There is huge optimistic value. There are lots of ways it can go wrong, but it was something that could completely change the future of that country's economy. And I think that's where my commitment came in, that this is an industry that can really positively influence the futures of a whole nations, right? Um, there, there are very few places in the world, I would say, where you don't have some kind of extractive industry. So my work in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, you know, it, it connects back to this understanding I've, I've gained that all people globally just want a better future for their children. Right. And they want jobs. They want schools. They want to be able to feel safe and secure and trust their governments. And we can actually do that through bringing in really responsible and savvy businesses that can come in and build an economy for them for the next 30 to 50 years in partnership. And you can have so much impact when you go into a country that's coming out of conflict. I mean, you just can. It's something that you can see happening right in front of your eyes. What do you think ideally would be the place of America in the international community? 
Oh, that's a, that's a <laughs> question. I, I think um, America needs to, to really embrace the policy that if you break it, you bought it. You know, if you go into a country and you engage in a way that destabilizes an area that you have to really commit to, to fixing that. You've been in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya. Mm -hmm. What is it like being a woman in those situations? You know, it's different in each of those countries, but all three, I think the perception is are very religiously conservative, right? They're, they're all perceived to be very conservative Muslim countries specifically that people think women would have an issue working in. Uh, I have not had those problems. I have found that in those countries, people are eager to work with Americans of all kinds, and they're intrigued <laughs> by, you know, by a woman, especially a woman working in the mind industry. So I've had a very positive experience. I also work with my husband, who's a, you know, a former Green Beret. Uh, so, so I, I feel pretty secure, you know, we work really closely together. And that's another aspect, though, that is good for us, because in that part of the world, family businesses are the norm. So if I were trying to do that as a, as a single American woman, I would probably be treated a little bit differently, but because I'm there working with my husband and I even take our daughter with us, um, we're treated as a family and we're really welcomed in that sense. So speaking of green berets, you received a global war on terrorism award back in 2011. What was that about? So that was for the work that I did in Afghanistan, running the mining exploration program for the U.S. Department of Defense in partnership with the U.S. Geological Survey and the Afghan Ministry of Mines. Um, and, and the reason they give awards like that for people doing what we would call development work is because our, our priority was bringing in private sector investment in order to help stabilize the economy of the country under the very optimistic, uh, but I think true theory that if you can help bring economic prosperity and opportunity to people, if they have the choice between contributing to their country versus maybe going with the bad guys, that they will choose the route that provides them with a job and security. Is mining optimistic? Absolutely. You have to be optimistic if you think you can walk into the middle of nowhere and pick up a rock. And from that, you know, comes a $50 million business, right? It's at its nature. Mining is incredibly optimistic. It's optimistic about the world, that the world is going to come up with new cool things that, that need to be built and used. It's optimistic about um, the earth and what the earth can provide, right? And it's optimistic about people, that people can figure out how to do all of this amazing stuff. You know, you, if you stand at the edge of a big open pit mine, it's just amazing. Like, how did we figure this out? <laughs> right. Like you think back, you know, hundreds, thousands of years, like people figured out that you could do like really cool stuff with a rock. You could melt it and it would turn into copper. Like who was that person? You know? So that spirit is, is still very much alive in the mining industry. Define optimism for me, like your own, the way you would define it, the way that would make most sense and be most meaningful and real in your experience. Optimism to me is the confidence and the faith that you can build. Really, that's it. <laughs> you know, this idea that there are new things out there still to be 
built and thought of and communicated that, that newness is still out there in the world to me is the definition of optimism. Wow. That's such a good definition. And that's, that's exactly how I would have defined optimism and architecture too. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. The idea that newness is still there. If you're going to be a force for difference in the world, you have to be convinced that the world can be different and you can have something to do with it. And yeah. that is a, that is a, a, um, a commitment to newness. Absolutely. And once you, you really internalize that, I think that's where the empowerment and the responsibility comes in. Stop watching and start doing. The Arc is a production of the Southern California Institute of Architecture. I'm Marika Trotter, the host and executive producer. Our technical director is Phil Logan. Production by Shelley Holcomb. Story and audio editing by Our Story Productions. Music by James Thomas Marsh. 